So last time we were together, we talked about how our world is full of these competing stories. And um, these stories can uh, grab our attention and, and want to shape our sense of who we are and how we should live. Um, but last time we were together like this, we talked about how rather than attempting to create our own identity, Christians need to somehow find their identity by being people who are located in the biblical story, in the biblical narrative. That's where we find uh, who we are and uh, who we're meant to be. But, but how does that happen? How do, you, how do you get located in the biblical story? Uh, we're going to talk about that this morning. The Bible that you hold in your hands or on your phone, it's this big story that makes these really big claims. Um, it's got a beginning, it's got a middle, it's got an end. And um, this whole story makes sense of all of life. It speaks into every aspect of what it means to be a human being. And Christians are people who live in the middle of a story that is telling us why we're here and where we're going. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to explore the biblical drama. And um, many Christians are familiar with this story, but um, it's a struggle for us a lot of times to connect our own story to the bigger story of God. We go, how, how does what you know, I, 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 I know maybe some scripture verses or stories or things like that, but like, what does this have to do with my life and my every day? Um, our first week we were, we were together in this series, God's Story and My Story, we described our Emmaus Road, the places where we are struggling to see God in our lives. And um, a lot of examples were brought up around the workplace. A lot of people said, yeah, my commute or my boss or my coworkers, where I work, yeah, it's, it's a struggle to see God uh, there. Uh, many of us, it seems like, are, we're not really sure what we're doing here, uh, at least for the, you know, for the nine to five or in cubicle land or wherever it is. It's, it's, it's as if our, our work and our gifts and our passions, it feels disconnected from our call to follow Christ. And so um, we want to do something about this disconnect. We want to, uh, and, and to do that, we, we, we begin in the beginning of the biblical story. We begin in the beginning. And the beginning of the story of, of the Bible helps us to understand where our lives fit into God's story. Um, so what does Genesis uh, tell us about who we are and what we're here to do? Let's look at a Bible, in a Bible at um, Genesis 1, verse 1. It's the very first book of the Bible uh, in Genesis 1, 1. So just turn a couple pages past the table of contents and all that kind of stuff, and you're there. Genesis 1, 1 through 4, and then I'm also going to skip down to verse 26. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And now skipping down to verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So the biblical story begins with Genesis 1 and 2, and right away we can see this is a story that's not just about us. This is a story about the entire cosmos, the heavens, and the earth. This is a story about the universe and everything in it. 
That is a big question. I will send you a really cool video from the Bible Project that will explain it way better than I could. Yes, yes, about the divine council. It's a very ancient way of talking and thinking. And yes, let's talk more. Let's talk more. Yes, because that's like, whoa, what, what's going on there? Yes. Yeah, you got it. You got it. No problem. No problem. So, um, so yeah, this is a story about the universe and everything in it. This is a story about God creating us in his image. And, um, and, and Genesis claims, first of all, that the cosmos is a creation. And it's not something else. The cosmos has a beginning, and the cosmos has a creator. So right from the start, we're told the world is not eternal. Um, it has a beginning. So some Eastern religious traditions, um, also some Western thinkers like Aristotle, um, they, they wouldn't say, they would say that this place is eternal. It's going to just go on and on and on. But in Genesis, the cosmos has a beginning, and then other biblical books let us know it also has an end. And we're also told that the cosmos was created. Um, philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, they would explain the, the origins of our world in, in really impersonal terms. Um, classical Hinduism and Buddhism also put the creation of the world in really impersonal terms. But in Genesis 1, the creator God, this is a very personal act. Um, it's a God who wants to be known. It's a God who wants to create a space to connect with his creation. The Almighty God creates the heavens and the earth in a very personal way, in a very particular point in time. And so that's why there's order in the cosmos. That's why for some of us who are in a teaching or a scientific field, you can, you can make measurements, you can take experiments, you can try stuff out and know that there's going to be some predictability and you'll probably get similar results again and again because God created a world that has order in it. You can measure things, you can try stuff out, and it's not random, and it's not gonna be different next time. Here on earth, God has created a place where life can really flourish. And, uh, but as the story goes, this wasn't always the case. Genesis 1 verse 2, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So God brings order out of chaos. And uh, the, the, the word uh, formless and empty, it's, uh, if you want to try a little Hebrew, it's tohu vavohu. You want to try that? Tohu vavohu. It's just fun to say. It sounds like tofu, which uh, is also formless and empty in taste. Um, so God brings order out of, out of chaos, out of the tohu vavohu. And creation is pictured as the six-day process. Um, with your Bibles open, I want to show you something that I think is really cool. Um, so you hear, you hear the words. Uh, remember, ancient peoples, they didn't have a, a Bible in their hands. They would hear this story. So they heard the words formless and empty. And then what follows? Days one through three deal with the world being without form. So formless and empty. And then days one through three, the world's without form. Um, so day one... Uh, form is created with the heavens. Day two, form is created with the sky and the sea. Day three, form is created with the land. Formless, how we started, but now there's form, there's structure and space. Then days four through six deal with the world being empty. So day four, planets and stars fill the space that was formed on day one. On day five, air and ocean creatures 
fill the sky and the sea that were formed on day two. And then day six, land creatures fill the land that was formed on day three. Formless and empty? Not anymore. It's cool, right? So the Genesis story tells us that the cosmos had order. It also tells us that the cosmos is not divine. It's not God. It was made by God, but it's not a part of God. Um, in, in other places in the ancient world, even other religious beliefs that people have um, around us, friends and neighbors and things like that, um, people will look to the celestial bodies and, and, and recognize them as, as spiritual forces that they want guidance from. Even people would worship um, the heavenly bodies and, 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 and try to line up their life and their decisions with the, with the movement of the stars and the planets and, um, and, and just and feel like, yeah, this world is divine and I want to be connected to it, and you know whether it's Gaia or some other you know, deity that you'd, you'd name. But people who are formed by the Genesis story, this is not the case for us. Um, we see that in the Genesis story, the creative word goes out from God and creation happens outside of God, not inside of God. The sun and the moon in this story are lights. They're lights in the sky. They're not gods. Um, I don't know if you've ever read in the Psalms, it's, in one of the Psalms it says, the sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. And you go like, what is this Psalm about like getting like a sunburn or something? Like the sun will not, no, that, this was good news to ancient people who were uh, very much afraid that if you aren't making the gods happy, then the, the spiritual forces behind the sun and the moon, they could harm you. So that was good news to them back then. Um, so the sun and the moon, they're, they're, they're just lights. You don't need to be afraid. But just because creation is not divine doesn't mean that having a biblical worldview is going to devalue uh, creation. Um, in Psalm 19.1, quite the opposite. We read, the heavens declare the glory of God. Isaiah 6 verse 3 says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So this place is not divine, but it's not devalued. This is a place where God wants to make himself known to us. God wants to connect to us in so many different ways. Um, the Celtic Christians had this concept of thin space, this idea that there are these places, and I'm, I'm guessing you've experienced this before, but there's just certain places where God's presence and goodness just seems so much more palpable, and his goodness just seems to be breaking through in creation. You even maybe have this sense like, you're just having a moment and you just feel like you want to thank somebody for that, the view or, or the, the, the trail walk or the meal that you're having. But just this sense of like, wow, something's really powerful here in this space and place. H have you ever experienced thin space? Maybe like hiking Joaquin Miller or um, watching ocean waves crash on the beach. Or um, some of us have experienced the awe of childbirth and just how powerful that moment is. Have you ever really deeply enjoyed a really good cup of coffee or a meal? And you're just like, man, that was fantastic. Some of us experience thin space when we dance or we exercise or we create. Does anybody else want to throw out an example of, of thin space? What, what, or you could even just echo one I've, I've said. But Taylor, what's an example? Yosemite Valley. Yosemite Valley. Oh, my gosh. Yes. What else? What else? Thin Meditation. In meditation, just, yeah, God breaking through as you're just taking that time to focus and be with him? Good music. Good music. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, there's, a, there's just moments you have in a concert. You're with total strangers, but by the end of the night, you feel like best friends with everybody, and you're like, what, what connected us just then? Yeah, it's powerful. 
Yeah, thin space. Yeah. Uh, when I give testimony, mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. 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 So yeah, as you're sharing your story, God's speaking through that. He's connecting you. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole earth is full of his glory. This, this whole place is, is, is a place where God wants to make himself known to us in so many different ways. The Genesis story tells us that creation is sacred. And we know that because of how creation is described as a temple. Um, this next part might feel a little bit like a classroom kind of experience, but I ho I'm hoping um, we'll have some fun conversations from it. I'm hoping it, you, you see some, some cool stuff that you never saw before. So we got to think a little bit like an ancient person right now. Temples in the ancient Near East were meant to function as a miniature model of the universe. I don't know if as a kid you built dioramas for a class project or built model airplanes or things like that, but it was a miniature model of something. Temples were meant to function as a miniature model of how the whole universe was held together and how it worked. You would go to a temple to get a living picture of how the God of that temple ruled and ordered the world. So it's interesting. In Genesis, the Hebrew word that's used for the sun and the moon as light in the heavens, it's, um, it's the same, it's the word, uh, the Hebrew word meor. So try saying that, meor. Meor, yeah. Um, this, this same word uh, was used for the light in Israel's tabernacle, their, their mobile temple that traveled with them through their wilderness journey. Um, same word. And then when we're told that God finished his work when he created the cosmos on the seventh day, the wording is very similar to Exodus 40 when we're told that Moses finished the work of constructing the tabernacle. Then Genesis tells us um, in the creation story that the waters were gathered into one place as, as seas. And then later we hear that in the construction of the tabernacle, there was a bronze sea. Um, it was this large basin with water in it. And then when we're told that the entrance to the Garden of Eden was on the east side, that is exactly where the entrance to the, uh, the tabernacle and the temple was. So this whole thing is meant to mirror uh, and be a picture of, of, of a temple, of the creation of a temple. But finally, what about the image of God that's placed in the Garden of Eden? Ancient people would not have missed this. The last thing, everybody knew this back then, the last thing to go into a completed temple was the image of the God. That's where, that was the God's house. That was where the God lived. And so the very last thing to go in there was the image of God. So what we're reading about in Genesis 1 and 2, we're reading about the construction of this cosmic temple, a place where God wants to live, a place where God wants to be present and interact with his creation. And so the world is not divine in the Genesis story, but the world is sacred. This world is a temple. This world is a place where God wants to be known. Christians are able to say that the world is good, but we actually have a reason for saying that it's good. And that's because a good God, out of his good character, created a good world. Ancient people and modern people um, might see the, the beginnings of this world as this random accidental process, but a Christian draws on the, this beautiful Genesis narrative and says, no, we think this place is good, and then we believe that this place was created with intention, that every detail, God had his fingers in the whole thing. So then that brings us to our role in this story. 
if this is the big story and how it all begins, then what's our part to play in this story? So in the ancient world, the story was that humans, when, the, when humans finally came along, that they came along for the benefit of the gods. Um, within their many models of the universe, ancient people would see an image of uh, the god, and they understood that the god's presence in that whatever temple that they were visiting, that, that god's presence was connected to, you know, my city or my life experiencing fertility or prosperity or peace or justice. So if you wanted to ensure that fertility and prosperity and peace and justice were happening in your city and in your life, you had to keep the gods happy all the time. You had to satisfy the needs of the gods all the time. Humans, according to the ancient many models of the universe, they were created to do work that the gods had gotten tired of doing. They're like, we just, we just, we need some people to do this. I'm, I'm, I'm sick of this. So for the, in the ancient world, what are humans? They're slave labor for the gods. That was, that was the view of what humans were. Keep the gods happy. They'll make sure that you have crops and you have health and you have children. Make the gods mad and they will take away everything that you love and you desire. So in this model of the universe, how can you ever really know if you've ever done enough to make the gods happy? How do you really know? You can't know. And it creates this world where you're just paranoid all the time. You, 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 you try to love things in your life, these, these gifts from the gods, but you just think, man, it maybe at any moment, I'm, I'm just going to tick off this, this god and they're going to take it from me. And so you're just always afraid that for the most random whim of the gods, the very thing that you love is just going to be stripped away from you and you'll get no explanation, no answers. But this is not the god of the Genesis story. The God that we meet in Genesis says, you are not here to meet my needs. The God of the Genesis story says, I created this world for my creation. I don't need this place. This place does not sustain me. I created it to sustain you. You don't feed me. I feed you. And here's the big one. You don't maintain my image. You are my images. Huge difference. Humans are not slave labor for the gods. Humans are the images of God in God's temple. Male and female, he created them in his image. And this is why human beings are not supposed to worship images. It's because we are the images of God. This is why God cares very deeply about how we treat one another. Because how you treat the image tr it reflects how you feel about God. So, what do image bearers do? We read in Genesis 1, verse 26, we rule. Turn to your neighbor and say, you rule. <laughs> ruling, ruling the created world, Manuel? Um, no, no, not, not, in, the, not in, the, in the Christian story. In the, in the Christian story, um, God is the one who has life. And I don't have life in myself. Every day I look in the mirror, I've got more hair falling out the back of my head, I'm getting fatter, I'm dying. Um, so if I'm, if I'm God, man, I'm screwed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, we, yes, so we reflect, yeah, we, we, we reflect him. 
we point people to him, and the way that we reflect and point him to uh, other people to him, uh, one of the ways is here. We we rule, and and I'll talk about a few more. Um, thank you for bringing that up. Um, so, um, it's also what the kings of the ancient world were believed to do. Those were the only people back then who were described as the image of God. But in the Genesis one story, it is the destiny of all human beings to be kings and queens, to rule like God rules. And when we rule like God rules, we reflect his good character to the world. When we, when we don't rule like God rules, we do not reflect God's good character in the world. But then, Genesis 2 verse 15, there's more. God tells humans to serve creation and to keep creation. And this is religious language. This is the same language that you'll read about, the same words that are used when it's describing the role of priests who serve and keep what's happening in the temple. So we've got a sacred task. We're in God's temple as God's image bearers, and we go to work as priests um, who serve and keep for this place. We're called to serve the earth. We're called to reverence it, to respect it, we're called to keep creation, to, to conserve it, and to protect it. And so Christians have to keep their royal and priestly vocation in mind as we account for the evil and brokenness that we see in the world. Because I think you'd agree, we don't have a stellar track record when it comes to ruling the world like God rules. We don't have a stellar track record when it comes to caring and keeping for this temple like we're called to do, like we've been asked to do. In Genesis 3, we see that the story takes a turn. Um, you might have heard it described as the fall. God's story tells us that God's creation is good, but this goodness was catastrophically marred through the fall. When humans wanted to carry out their kingship and their priesthood apart from God. And the fall is when sin comes into the story. Now, there's a few helpful ways uh, to understand um, sin. Um, one word uh, that would describe it is disruption. Um, there, there is an order, there's a well-being to this place that God intends for the world. It's called shalom. Let me hear you say shalom. God intends shalom, which is wholeness, it's life, it's peace and harmony between God and us, between us and other people, between us and ourselves even and between us and the created world. That's what God intends. But maybe one way to define sin is any way that I have been guilty of disrupting God's shalom, any way that I've gotten in there and, and I've, I've wrecked it. Another word is rebellion. If God intends harmony within his creation, sin is rebellion against God's good ordering of the world. Sin says, I don't really like how you're doing this. You're in my seat. I'd like, to, I'd like to sit there. That looks nice. Another word would be participation. Um, creation is supposed to be headed somewhere. You and I have a part to play to take this thing further, to make it new, to make it better, to, to partner with God where he wants to take this thing. But there is a choice to work for God's life and flourishing, but we could also subvert this thing with the way of death things that, 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 that kill the good thing that, that God wants to do. Maybe with sin, we need to ask, what are some ways that instead of participating in a way that leads to life, I've been participating in a way that leads to death, 
and corruption and decay. And then another Hebrew term to describe sin is missing the mark. Um, sin would be any of the ways that there's this beautiful picture that's been held out uh, in front of us, but then like an arrow shot uh, poorly, just, just, we just, we miss the mark. And uh, we miss the beautiful picture, the beautiful thing that God had intended. But here's what we got to remember. Where you begin the story of God and where you end the story is going to shape and determine what sort of story you and I are telling with our lives, with our words. When we tell the story, we need to make sure that we talk about the disruption and the rebellion and the participation and missing the mark. We tell it properly. The sin chapter is a chapter within the large story of what God's been up to in the world. Within the larger story, sin and our fallen nature, they are not the first word in the story. The first word is, is goodness and life and flourishing and, and purpose and calling. Sin and fallen nature are not the first word in the story, and they are temporary. They are not always going to be part of God's story. So when we share God's story, we take the sin chapter very seriously, but we can't forget it is a chapter in the story. Let's not forget Genesis 3 is not how the story begins, and Genesis 3 is not how the story ends. Woo-hoo. We, we place the sin chapter within the larger context of God's story. And within the larger story, Jesus Christ deals with sin and death. So, what's our response to the sin chapter when we recognize it at work in our lives? Uh, confession. That's when we admit, that's when we recognize, that's when we declare and agree with God. And repentance is returning. So uh, say, I'm teaching you a lot of Hebrew words today, say yada. Yada. We agree with God. We yada. We say, yep, I, God, I have participated in the way that leads to death and corruption. Yep, I have. Yes, I did that. Yes, I'm owning up to it. Now say teshuva. God bless you. Teshuva is when we return to God. So yes, God, I veered off course, but God has made it possible for me to return. God's made it possible for me to come home. Isn't that a great picture? If you're calling people to return, you're calling people back to their proper place within God's good creation. You're saying, God's got some great work for you to do. He's got so much purpose and calling for you. you, you you're a priest. You're a king. You're a queen. In the coming weeks, we're going to see that God intends to renew and restore and reconcile all things. So again, where you begin the story and where you end the story is going to shape and determine what story you're telling people. That means that there's a wrong way to tell the story. And there's a right way. So if the story that we're telling starts in Genesis 3, then the central issue is the removal of sin. If the drive of our story is to get rid of a problem, then what comes out of our mouth, what we're sharing with people is, oh, I'm here to tell you how to get rid of your problem. I'm here to give you an inoculation to a disease. But if the story that you're telling begins in Genesis 1, then the central issue is the restoration of God's shalom. That is a very different story. 
Listen to Christians tell their version of the story of God, and you're going to quickly pick up on the heart of the story that they think they're supposed to be telling and living. If our story begins in Genesis 3, then people are going to pick up on this, and they're going to go, oh, so for you, the big story is about getting rid of sin. But if your story begins in Genesis 1, then yes, people are going to hear about the removal of sin. But it's going to be told within its proper place as a chapter within the larger story of what God is doing, where God is restoring God's shalom in the world. Does that make sense? So if you begin the story in, in Genesis 3, the central story, you're telling people who, they're, who they aren't, who they're not, who they're never going to be. But a story that begins in Genesis 1, you're telling people who they are. You're telling them about their calling and their destiny and their purpose. An evangelism strategy that sounds like we just got to get out there on the street and we got to convince people that they're filthy, rotten sinners. That strategy is driven by a particular version of what that person believes the story is. And so are the signs that you see on the freeway overpass that says Jesus saves from hell. And if you ever read that and you cringed, if that ever rubbed you the wrong way, but you felt like it, it must be true because I know if I argued with that person, they'd have all kinds of Bible verses to back up why they think that's the version of the story. There is a good reason why that bothered you. There's a good reason why you cringed. That's because these are messages that are beginning way too late in the biblical story. This is a story that has begun in Genesis 3 instead of Genesis 1. And it's always a good idea for Christians to begin in the beginning when we tell God's story. If we begin in the beginning, then we paint this picture of a world that God created for us to live in, a really good world, a world that's blessed. And so then against the backdrop of this good, beautiful world, then the sin chapter makes so much sense. You go, yeah, I, I get disruption of shalom, for sure. I have, I have fully participated in that. I have played my part in wrecking the good thing that God is up to in the world. But if I just cold call you on the street and just say, hey, um, I haven't met you yet, but I just need to tell you that you're an abomination to God. <laughs> Seriously? That's your good news? What's your bad news? Even if you don't say this, people will pick up on it. For many of us in here, our story is, yeah, I went to that church, but I left after a while because I just felt beat up. Everybody was just telling me how terrible I am. And I already knew that. Didn't need anybody to tell me that. I was hoping for some good news. The good news that we do or don't share with people comes from our understanding of what the big story is. So, would you agree it's, it's important that we're telling the right story, that we're beginning in the beginning? We tell the right story when it begins in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. When we begin in the beginning, our good news is, hey, there's a really good reason that you have had these moments in your life where you're experiencing joy or beauty or goodness or life, and in that moment, you just feel like you need to thank somebody and I'd love to tell you the name of that person that you want to thank. God is generous, and he's created this good world, and that God has made it so that he could be known. 
when we begin in the beginning, our story that we share with people is, yeah, there's a good reason that when you and I see brokenness all around us and inside of us, you have this sense of, I, I don't, I just feel like it's not supposed to be this way. I just have this memory or this echo within me of a different kind of world, a different way. And this seems like it's not supposed to be this way. And you can tell that person, yeah, there's a really good reason you have that sense. And the good news of our story is that God is at work to restore his shalom in every part of his creation, every part of our lives, because he loves this world. He created this world, and what God creates, he redeems. And you and I get to participate with God as he redeems the world, as he reconciles the world, as he restores our relationships with him and with other people and even within ourselves and with the creation. We are inviting people to reclaim their calling as priests, as kings, as queens who are imitating God in, in the way that God rules, in the way that God cares for the world. We are joining God's shalom restoration project in the world. That is what we are here to do. Now, what you can do for your career, that's going to change. If you have a commute, that could change. Our coworker and boss situation could change. But our Christian vocation is always going to be the same no matter where we find ourselves. Our Genesis origin story calls us to ask, okay, God, here I am in cubicle land, or here I am as a barista, or here I am as a social worker, or here I am as a mom. Here I am in this neighborhood. God, how are you calling me to bring your shalom to this place? God, where do I see chaos and you want to bring order? God, where do I see justice or inequality where I could reflect your good rule in the world, where there'd be justice and relationships would be set right? If there's coworkers that aren't getting along, maybe I can get in there and, and mediate and help them. If there's a broken marriage, maybe I can let them know, hey, I'm here to help. I'm not going anywhere until I help you guys sort this out and I'll be there for you and whatever resources or prayer or strength that you need. Let's Let's make this right. Where do I see neglect? Where, uh, God, I want to bring your keeping and care to this place where there's weeds, where there's thorns, where there's brokenness. Our Christian vocation gives us new eyes to see that God's got good work for us to do. And as we participate with God in bringing his shalom, we're going to see, God, you've already been present at my job. You've been here the whole time. You've been here on my commute. You've been here with this really weird coworker situation. You've been here in this neighborhood. But I just needed you to open my eyes to see that you were walking along with me the whole time. I, uh, I, I, to, help, to help this kind of get real for us and to connect this to, to our own lives, I want to invite up um, my, my new friend, uh, Tom Prince, to share his story. Um, some of us met Tom last week, and Tom... Um, has been in the neighborhood much longer than I have. Um, about 20 years ago, he gathered with a group of people from their church to found a co-housing community just around the corner called uh, Temescal Commons. And Temescal Commons is a big part of how Tom wanted to work for God's shalom in, uh, in the Temescal district with, with some friends, with a faith community. There's about 20-some uh, people who are living on a property together, and they've got residential units and common areas where everybody's living and working and playing and raising their kids in community with one another. 
And, uh, and I'll just let Tom uh, tell you more, and then uh, I, might, I may have a few uh, questions. Uh, but Tom, everybody, everybody, Tom. And, uh, and Tom's got some cool pictures that kind of tell the story of this place. So I think the sort of big question for us as a community of faith was how could we start pulling the different circles of our lives closer together? And um, so that we were working and living and worshiping. It's pretty easy to be living here, worshiping there, working over here, and um, be on the road all the time. Um, so we wanted to uh, live well in God's creation um, and, and be good neighbors to each other, people around us, and also be caretakers of that creation. Uh, this is what the site looked like uh, before we got started. There was an old um, house up here on the side. Uh, and then it was an old Italian family that had been there. And next to it was, they had gardens and chicken coops, but it was all dilapidated. In fact, they had several offers on the property, and we said uh, we were hoping to build a community. And they're like, hey, that's totally in the spirit of um, what we're we would like to support. So they sold it to us for less than um, other offers that they had. A anyway, this is just an interesting thing. Uh, you know, it's a weird thing to have an opportunity to build things, but you're still thinking about the creation. Like, how do we work with the creation, not against it? And one simple way of doing that if you're building a house is you put the wide part of the house is going south. And when you do that, uh, most of the heating um, of the house can be done by the sun. And it's just simply by shifting the direction of your house that direction. Um, where almost every house in Oakland has a narrow part forward. So if someone had just thought about that in the very beginning, the amount of CO2 that wouldn't be released in the air, the amount of just free good energy would be good. So when you're working against the creation, it's very costly. Uh, out of your pocketbook, but also for the creation. And if you take time to think about it and work with the creation, uh, it, it blesses you. Next, next one. Uh, so here, there's something. Those red things down there are um, radiant floor heating. And so, it, it, and then we just have cement that goes in there. So that actually when the sun comes through the windows, it hits the cement floor, and then it, uh, it saves the energy and then releases it um, at night. And periodically, just a few times a year, we can kick on some hot water. And if you heat the cement, it radiates out instead of heating the air, which you have to keep redoing. So again, it's just a simple way of doing it, but if you use just the nature of the way materials work in creation, they, they also um, bless you. Uh, so this is a common meal we eat together uh, twice, twice a week and share the cooking. So like every 12 meals, you, you might need to uh, cook once and help clean up once. And the rest of the time you come in and eat, hang out, and you leave, someone else does the dishes. Uh, so the coordinating with each other makes um, you know, just some of the tricky parts um, work good. And just really nice intergenerational things happen. 
the guy here on the right was born when we uh, established uh, the community in uh, 2000. He's off at college now, and she's one of the younger ones in the community. Uh, there's all sorts of things that happen. This is a women's book club. There's Bible studies. There's, uh, I've got educators and literacy people coming over from Berkeley and Oakland. Um, there's a whole variety of things that happen because we have this common space. So we built a space that's there and it's used by us and by neighbors and all sorts of things. And it wouldn't have been there had we not, you know, uh, taken on that piece. There's gardens up in the front, <clears throat> you know, on the south side, and it provides, you know, a good amount of the lettuce and, uh, you know, different sorts of things. But actually just getting out and caring for things um, and, again, understanding how creation works uh, makes a difference. Um, that guy right there, he's the same guy that was helping build the blocks. Uh, yeah, uh, and, yeah, keep going. <clears throat> this is a little interesting design feature. When we're doing the, the fence, uh, you know, I decided, like, hey, let's turn a bench outwards. Uh, and so when people come by, they'll, they'll sit. Sometimes people sleep there. Uh, but people are sitting out there all the time. And there's actually apple trees on either side, so you could just grab something. Or there's berries. And neighbors are coming by eating the berries. and. Uh, all of that, and that's the way we planned it. It just uh, and and just a little bit of glimpse into the garden, I suppose, and a little free library. Uh, yeah, I, I've been experimenting with bees for a while. Uh, they're uh, they're sort of uh, maybe the canary in the mine sort of thing. So bees have been doing terribly in the last ten years. The first time I did it, I had the same hive for like four years. The last time, two times I did it, I lost them both to these uh, varroa mites, which are new and causing huge problems. So there's lots of ways that we're interacting with the creation where we're really not honoring these fellow creatures we sell the, share the earth with, but we're um, not only making it worth for them, but, uh, but killing them. Like we, we have, uh, extinction of species right now at about a thousand times greater than what you would expect it to be and it's mainly because of us the the caretakers of the creation so so we're not doing so good we're doing good on dominion really bad on uh care <laughs> yeah we put solar panels on the place so they've been up there providing you know uh, just clean energy from the sun. There's like no moving parts. There's almost nothing to go wrong. And the, the it's, uh, keep going. It's another set of uh, panels on the house. Those are put up in 98 and they're still working great. Probably paid for themselves after eight years. So all the rest of those years of just free, clean electricity. Um, Electricity here, is, it's just plugging into a car, and uh, so it really costs nothing. I, I, I haven't been, you know, to a gas pump in quite a while. Yeah. Uh, as people in the, we shared cars and stuff, so we had like just like one, one car, and so that we got exemptions from the city to uh, have fewer uh, 
car spots and more green place. And uh, that's kind of what it looks like now. Awesome. Thank you, Tom, so yep. much. Thank you. I love Tom's approach. Um, when it comes to what people believe, there's some people who want to argue with you or indoctrinate you. Um, Tom's approach is, why don't I just show you what I believe? And um, if, if, uh, if this is compelling enough, uh, maybe you'll want to be a part of this. Um, what, if, what if we took that approach? What if we put God's shalom on display with the kinds of lives that we lived and the places that we create and the things we create and, and doing this together instead of on our own? Um, as, as we pursue God's shalom, I want to give you a gift. Um, it's a key. And there's these key necklaces here in the middle. Um, these keys, I want to tell you about them, uh, just a couple things. They are, um, they're retired. Um, they used to open the, the doors of homes in Oakland. So in one sense, it's a key to the city. Um, but you'll also see when you get your key that it has a crown stamped into it. And um, that's because Jesus told his followers that he has given us the keys to his kingdom. Keys are about trust. And when Jesus said, I gave you the keys to my kingdom, he's saying, like, I'm looking for partners and I trust you and I want to do this with you. And so when it comes to working for Shalom, you can know that Jesus trusts you. Keys are about authority. When you work for Shalom, you're doing this in the name and the authority of your king. And all of his resources are available to you. Keys are about opening doors. So if there's any way that you're facing a closed door, if there's any way that you haven't, there's been places that others have not been able to go, but you want to go there. You want to bring breakthrough in life there. You can, you can have this as a reminder to say, God's given me the, the authority here. So um, as you wear your key necklace, you know, it might bounce along your chest or you'll forget that you have it and somebody asks you about it. What, what does this mean? It means that Jesus has given me the keys. It means that Jesus trusts me. He trusts all of us. And so um, we're going to sing. And as we do that, um, come on up here so that Tom or I can give you a kingdom key. Um, we're going to put the key around your neck. And then we want you to hear from us the words, Jesus trusts you.